Chapter Eight of The Mucker by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. The Wreck of the Half Moon. Instantly, Barbara Harding looked into the face of the mucker. She read her danger. Why the man should hate her, she could not guess. But that he did was evidenced by the malevolent expression on his surly countenance. For a moment he stood glaring at her. Then he spoke. "'I'm wise to what you and that guy was chinning about,' he growled. "'And I'm right here to tell you's that you don't want to try to put nothing over on me, see? "'You's ain't a-goin' to double-cross Billy Byrne. "'I got a good notion to hand you's what's comin' to you. "'And if it hadn't been for you's, I wouldn't have been here on this godforsaken wreck. "'You's is the cause of all the trouble. "'What you's ought to get is croaked, and then there wouldn't be nothing to bother any of us. "'You and your bunch of kale, they give me a swift pain.' For half a cent I'd soak you a wallop to the solar plexus that would put you to sleep for a long count. You, you, but here words failed, Billy. To his surprise the girl showed not the slightest indication of fear. Her head was high, and her level gaze never wavered from his own eyes. Presently a sneer of contempt curled her lip. You coward, she said quietly, to insult and threaten a woman. You are nothing but an insufferable bully, and a cowardly murderer. You murdered a man on a lotus whose little finger held more true manhood, bravery, and worth than the whole of your great hulking carcass. You are only fit to strike from behind, or when your victim is unsuspecting, as you did Mr. Terrier the other day. Do you think I fear a thing such as you, a beast without honor that kicks an unconscious man in the face? I know that you can kill me. I know that you are coward enough to do it because I am a defenseless woman, and though you may kill me, you never can make me show fear for you. That is what you wish to do. That is your idea of manliness. I had never imagined that such a thing as you lived in the guise of man. But I have read you, Mr. Byrne, since I have had occasion to notice you, and I know now that you are what is known in the great cities as a mucker. The term never meant much to me before, but I see now it fits your kind perfectly, for in it is all the loathing and contempt that a real man, a gentleman, must feel for such as you. As she spoke, Billy Byrne's eyes narrowed, but not with the cunning of premeditated attack. He was thinking. For the first time in his life he was thinking of how he appeared in the eyes of another. Never had any human being told Billy Byrne thus coolly and succinctly what sort of person he seemed to them. In the heat of anger, men of his own stamp had applied vile epithets to him, describing him luridly as such that by the simplest laws of nature he could not possibly be. But this girl had spoken coolly, and her descriptions had been explicit backed by illustrations. She had given real reasons for her contempt, and somehow it made that contempt seem very tangible. One who had known Billy would have expected him to fly into a rage and attack the girl brutally after her scathing diatribe. Billy did nothing of the sort. Barbara Harding's words seemed to have taken all the fight out of him. He stood looking at her for a moment. It was one of the strange contradictions of Billy Byrne's personality that he could hold his eyes quite steady and level, meeting the gaze of another unwaveringly, and in that moment something happened to Billy Byrne's perceptive faculties. It was as though scales which had dimmed his mental vision had partially dropped away, for suddenly he saw what he had not seen before. A very beautiful girl, brave and unflinching before the brutal menace of his attitude, and though the mucker thought that he still hated her, the realization came to him that he must not raise a hand against her, that for the life of him he could not, nor ever again against any other woman. Why this change, Billy did not know. He simply knew that it was so, and with an ugly grunt he turned his back upon her and walked away. 
A slight breeze had risen from the southwest since Terrier had left Barbara Harding, and now all hands were busily engaged in completing the jury-rigging that the half-moon might take advantage of the wind and make the shore that rose abruptly from the bosom of the ocean but a league away. Before the work was completed the wind increased rapidly, so that when the tiny bit of canvas was hoisted into position it bellied bravely, and the half-moon moved heavily forward toward the land. We gotta make a mighty quick run of it, said Skipper Sims to Ward, or we'll go to pieces on them rocks before we ever find a landing. That we will if this wind rises much more, replied Ward. And so far as I can see, there ain't no more chance to make a landing there than there would be on the side of a house. And indeed, as the half-moon neared the towering cliffs, it seemed utterly hopeless that aught else than a fly could find a foothold upon that sheer and rocky face that rose abruptly from the ocean's surface. Some two hundred yards from the shore it became evident that there was no landing to be made directly before them, and so the course of the ship was altered to carry them along parallel to the shore in an effort to locate a cove or beach where a landing might safely be effected. The wind, increasing steadily, was now whipping the sea into angry breakers that dashed resoundingly against the rocky barrier of the island. To drift within reach of those frightful destroyers would mean the instant annihilation of the half-moon and all her company yet this was precisely what the almost unmanageable hulk was doing at the wheel under the profane direction of skipper sims while ward and terrier with a handful of men altered the meager sail from time to time in an effort to keep the ship off the rocks for a few moments longer the half-moon was almost upon the cliff's base when a narrow opening showed some hundred fathoms before her nose an opening through which the sea ran in long surging sweeps rolling back upon itself in angry breakers that filled the aperture with swirling water and high-flung spume to have attempted to drive the ship into such a place would have been the height of madness under ordinary circumstances. No man knew what lay beyond, nor whether the opening carried sufficient water to float the half-moon, though the long, powerful sweep of the sea as it entered the opening denoted considerable depth. Skipper Sims, seeing the grim rocks rising close beside the vessel, realized that naught could keep her from them now. He saw death peering close to his face. He felt the icy breath of the grim reaper on his brow. A coward at heart, he lost every vestige of his nerve in that crucial moment of his life. Leaping from the wheelhouse to the deck, he ran backwards and forwards, shrieking at the top of his lungs, begging and entreating someone to save him, and offering fabulous rewards to the man who carried him safely to the shore. The sight of their captain in a blue funk had its effect upon the majority of the crew, so that in a moment a pack of screaming, terror-ridden men had supplanted the bravos and bullies of the half-moon. From the cabin companionway, Barbara Harding looked upon the disgusting scene. Her lip curled in scorn at the sight of those men weeping and moaning in their fright. She saw Ward busy about one of the hatches. It was evident that he intended making a futile attempt to utilize it as a means of escape after the half-moon struck, for he was attaching ropes to it and dragging it towards the port side of the ship, away from the shore. Larry Devine crouched beside the cabin and wept. When Sims gave up on the ship, Barbara Harding saw that the wheelmen, there had been two of them, desert their post, and almost instantly the nose of the half-moon turned toward the rocks. But scarcely had the men reached the deck than Terrier leapt to their place at the wheel. Unassisted he can do little with the heavy helm. Barbara saw that he alone of all the officers and men of the brigantine was making an attempt to save the vessel. However futile the effort might be, it at least bespoke the coolness and courage of the man. With the sight of him there wrestling with death in a hopeless struggle, a little wave of pride surged through the girl. Here indeed was a man and he loved her that she knew whether or no she returned his love her place was beside him now to give what encouragement and physical aid lay in her power quickly she ran to the wheelhouse terrier saw her and smiled there's no hope i'm afraid he said but by george i intend to go down fighting 
and not like those miserable yellow curs barbara did not reply but she grasped the spokes of the heavy wheel and tugged as he tugged terrier made no effort to dissuade her from the strenuous labor every ounce of weight would help so much and the man had a wild mad idea that he was attempting to put into effect what do you hope to do asked the girl make that opening in the cliffs terrier nodded do you think me crazy he asked it is such a chance as only a brave man would dare to take she replied so you think that we can get her to take it i doubt it he answered with another man at the wheel we might though below them the crew of the half moon ran hither and thither along the deck on the side away from the breakers they fought with one another for useless bits of planking and cordage the giant figure of the black cook blanco rose above the others in his hand was a huge butcher knife when he saw a piece of wood he coveted in the hands of another he rushed upon his helpless victim with wild bestial howls menacing him with his gleaming weapon thus he was rapidly accumulating the material for a life raft but there was a single figure upon the deck that did not seem mad with terror a huge fellow he was who stood leaning against the capstan watching the wild antics of his fellows with a certain wondering expression of incredulity the while a contemptuous smile curled his lips as barbara harding chanced to look in his direction he also chanced to turn his eyes toward the wheelhouse it was the mucker the girl was surprised that he the greatest coward of them all should be showing no signs of cowardice now probably he was paralyzed with fright the moment that the man saw the two who were in the wheelhouse and the work that they were doing he sprang quickly towards them at his approach the girl shrank closer to terrier what new outrage did the fellow contemplate now he was beside her the habitual dark scowl blackening his expression he laid a heavy hand on barbara hardy's arm come out of that he bellowed that's no kind of job for a broiler and before either she or terrier could guess his intention the mucker had pushed barbara aside and taken her place at the wheel good for you burn cried terrier i needed you badly why didn't you say so then growled the man with the aid of burn's herculean muscles and great weight the bow of the half-moon commenced to come slowly around so that presently she almost paralleled the cliffs again but now she was much closer in than when skipper simms had deserted her to her fate so close that terrier had little hope of being able to carry out his plan of taking her opposite the opening and then turning and running her before the wind straight into the swirling waters of the inlet now they were almost opposite the aperture and between the giant cliffs that rose on either side of the narrow entrance a sight was revealed that filled their hearts with renewed hope and rejoicing for a tiny cove was seen to lie beyond the fissure a cove with a long wide sandy beach up which the waves broken at the entrance to the little haven rolled with much diminished violence can you hold her for a second burn asked terrier we must make the turn in another moment and i've got to let out the sail the instant that you see me cut her loose put your helm hard to the starboard she'll come around easily enough i imagine and then hold her nose straight for that opening it's one chance in a thousand but it's the only one are you game you know it cull go to it was billy burn's laconic rejoinder as terrier left the wheel barbara harding stepped to the mucker's side let me help you she said we need every hand that we can get for the next few moments beat it growled the man i don't want no skirts in my way with a flush the girl drew back and then turning watched terrier where he stood ready to cut loose the sail at the proper instant the vessel was now opposite the cleft in the cliffs terrier had lashed a new sheet in position now he cut the old one the sail swung around until caught in position by the stout line the mucker threw the helm hard to starboard the nose of the brigantine swung quickly toward the rocks the sail filled and an instant later the ship was dashing to what seemed like her inevitable doom 
Skipper Simms, seeing what Terrier had done after it was too late to prevent it, dashed madly across the deck toward his Juno. "'You fool!' he shrieked. "'You fool! What are you doing? Driving us straight for the rocks? Murdering the whole lot of us?' And with that he sprung upon the Frenchman with a maniacal fury, bearing him to the deck beneath him. Barbara Harding saw the attack of the feared, demented man, but she was powerless to prevent it. The mucker saw it, too, and grinned. He hoped that it would be a good fight. There was nothing that he enjoyed more. He was sorry that he could not take a hand in it, but the wheel demanded all his attention now, so that he was even forced to take his eyes from the combatants that he might rivet them upon the narrow entrance to the cove toward which the half-moon was now plowing her way at constantly increasing speed. The other members of the ship's company, all unmindful of the battle that at another time would have commanded their undivided attention, stood with eyes glued upon the wild channel toward which the brigantine's nose was pointed. They saw now what Skipper Sims had failed to see, the little cove beyond, and the chance for safety that the bold stroke offered if it proved successful. With steady muscles and giant sinews, the mucker stood by the wheel, nursing the erratic wreck as no one might have supposed it was in him to do. Behind him, Barbara Harding watched first Terrier and Sims, and then Byrne and the swelling waters toward which he was heading the ship. Even the strain of the moment did not prevent her from wondering at the strange contradictions of the burly young ruffian, who could at one moment show such traits of cowardliness, and the next rise so coolly to the highest pinnacles of courage. As she watched him occasionally, now she noted for the first time the leonine contour of his head, and she was surprised to note that his features were regular and fine, and then she recalled Billy Mallory, and the cowardly kick that she had seen him deliver to the face of the unconscious Terrier. With a shudder of disgust, she turned away from the man at the wheel. Terrier by this time had managed to get on top of Skipper Sims, but that worthy still clung to him with the desperation of a drowning man. The half-moon was rising on a great wave that would bear her into the maelstrom of the cove's entrance. The wind had increased to the proportion of a gale, so that the brigantine was fairly racing either to her doom or her salvation. Who could tell which? Halfway through the entrance the wave dropped the ship, and with a mighty crash that threw Barbara Harding to her feet, the vessel struck full amidships upon a sunken reef. Like a thing of glass she broke in two with the terrific impact, and in another instant the waters about her were filled with screaming men. Barbara Harding felt herself hurtled from the deck as though shot from a catapult. The swirling waters engulfed her. She knew that her end had come. Only the most powerful of swimmers might hope to win through the lashing hell of waters to the beach beyond. For a girl to do it was too helpless even to contemplate, but she recalled Terrier's words of no short time ago. There's no hope, I'm afraid, but by George I intend to go down fighting. And with the recollection came a like resolve on her part, to go down fighting, and so she struck out against the powerful waters that swirled her hither and thither, now perilously close to the rocky sides of the entrance, and now into the mad chaos of the channel's center. Would to heaven that Terrier were near her, she thought. If any could save her, it would be he. Since she had come to believe in the man's friendship and sincerity, Barbara Harding had felt renewed hope of eventual salvation, and with the hope had come a desire to live, which had almost been lacking for the greater part of her detention upon the half-moon. Bravely she battled now against the awful odds of the mighty Pacific, but soon she felt her strength waning. More and more ineffectually became her puny efforts, and at last she ceased almost entirely the futile struggle. And then she felt a strong hand grasp her arm and with a sudden surge she was swung over a broad shoulder. Quickly she grasped the rough shirt that covered the back of her would-be rescuer, and then commenced a battle with the waves that for many minutes, that seemed hours to the frightened girl, hung in the balance. But at last the swimmer beneath her forged steadily and persistently toward the sandy beach to founder out at last with an unconscious burden in his mighty arms. 
As the man staggered up out of reach of the water, Barbara Harding opened her eyes to look in astonishment into the face of the mucker. End of chapter 8